When everything feels upside down, culture is what holds us together. It's the songs that soundtrack our morning commute and our quarantine living room dance parties, or that beckon us down to the bar to find someone to make out with. It's the shows we binge and the books we read to wind down after a hard day at work, and it's the meals we cook to remember our grandmothers. It's an excuse to get out of the house and go sit in a dark theater on a Saturday afternoon, and a litmus test for finding other people who see the world like we do. It's the thing that gives our lives meaning when it's hard to make sense of anything at all. I'm Andrea Dominic. And I'm Emily Friedlander. Welcome to The Culture Journalist, a podcast about the wild west of culture and culture journalism in the year 2020. Think of it as your guide to understanding the arts, technology, and a shifting labor landscape through the lens of culture reporting. Hosted by us, two freelance journalists from opposite sides of the country. guys. I'm very excited to introduce our guest, Kristen Corey. She is a staff writer at Vice. I've worked with her back in the day when I was an editor at Noisy. Emily continues to work with her at Vice. She's an unbelievably talented culture critic and journalist and reporter. She recently published a terrific essay on Vice, Peg to Blackout Tuesday. It's called The Music Industry Fails Black People Every Day. And um, we're really excited to have you on, Kristen. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be on. I wish circumstances were better, but we've got to talk about it. Thanks for joining us, Kristen. So you released this story the week of um, Blackout Tuesday in early June, which was an initiative started by um, two Black women in the major label industry, Jamila Thomas and Brianna Agumang. Um And the purpose of it was to have sort of a day of pause um, to recognize the victims of police violence and kind of call attention to structural racism, um, not just in the country at large, but also in the music industry. Um, What went through your mind when you first heard about this initiative um, and that this was kind of how the music industry and the media were going to be responding to um, the death of George Floyd and the kind of protests that arose around it? Well, when I first saw that Blackout Tuesday was being led by Jamila and Brianna, two Black women in the industry. It didn't surprise me at all, just because historically, that is what we do, right? Black women are finding solutions to the problems that white people create. That's just like what we Mm -hmm. always have to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But as time kept going, you know, I'm looking at the coverage and I'm just like, okay, I'm waiting for somebody to say it. And I really thought somebody was going to beat me to the punch. And, you know, as the only noisy staffer or as the only Black woman on the culture desk, I knew I had to have a stance. I didn't know what that stance would be at the time. Um, And I was very conscious not to be creating more noise in such a news heavy time. But as I kept seeing, you know, our competitors and other outlets and other freelance writers who always are very adamant about being close to, to Black artists and close to Black people and not saying anything, I just said, okay, so we're clearly going to ignore the elephant in the room here. Um, the, the fact of the matter is, this is not just a one-time thing, and this day of pause doesn't need to stop at a day of pause. Like Historically, the music industry has been failing Black people for a very long time. It's been failing Black people since Elvis's days and beyond that. You know what I mean? So it was just kind of a thing where it's just like, the fact that nobody is willing to call out how racist and how elitist this industry is, is only further perpetuating the problems. And I honestly think there's a lot of 
uh, rhetoric and discourse about the major labels, and it needs to be just that um, that much pressure on mainstream media outlets as well, because there are just not enough Black people, full-time staffers who are Black, who actually have some sort of editorial say in what goes on in these rooms. There's just not enough of us there, and it does place like an impossible burden on us. Yes, this is our job, but we're also processing what's going on in real time, you know? So it was just kind of this thing like, I don't know what I have to say. I'm just gonna, I just like found a headline and was like, this is how I feel. Let the words come out kind of thing. And that's how the piece ended up happening. Like I, I thought about it and then I like wrote it down before I got in the shower, pen to paper, not even on a Word doc yet, pen to paper. And then I just published it the next day. And, you know, this initiative, um, you know, obviously it was started by two Black women. Some people had some critiques about how the industry itself was responding to it and that companies were kind of taking this idea of a day of pause as um, an indication that they should just not say anything. Um, There was even some critiques floating around that people were flooding social media feeds with um, black squares and also like the Black Lives Matter hashtag and preventing um, important information for protesters and activists um, to be seen because they're kind of just flooding everything. Um, Did that play a role at all in you feeling like you had to write something? Yeah, well, I remember waking up because I I was there was also some confusion. Like I remember like seeing the Instagram page like everybody else and I didn't see anything about oh, post the black square on this day. But when I woke up, that's all I was seeing was black squares. And I think in that time, first I was saying like I'm not going to post no square. Like that's not even what the that wasn't even the instructions, you know, but I'm seeing square after square and I almost got like I got a little bit of FOMO because I was just like, well, in my mind, I was saying, like, it doesn't really matter if it was the instruction or if it wasn't, because if this is what people are doing to signal boost what's going on, if it means that I have to post a square, I'm going to just post a square. You know what I mean? And I think in that time, people so badly wanted to feel like they were doing something to bring attention to what was happening. And whether that was a directive from Jamila or Brianna or not, I think you know, it made people feel together in a time of quarantine where you, you know, you can't rally around or at that time, um, people weren't rallying around physically so much. So, um, yeah, I could definitely see how people could have some critiques there. But I also think it's extremely unfair to think that Jamila and Brianna were supposed to have this intricate laid out plan for what you know, mm-hmm. for how to move on. This is not their problem to fix. You know, mm-hmm. the day of pause is for the, the powers that be to say, oh, okay, look at all of these black squares. People are fed up. People are mad at us. What can we do to help? You know what I mean? Like to see all of the labels posting the squares and then, you know, it, it feels very shallow on their behalf because I don't know, I think you can always kind of tell when something is getting co-opted or things of that nature. And I just felt like they had no plan. Um, But I don't think any of that falls on Brianna and Jamila. Yeah, totally. And probably one of the most interesting responses that floated around to me that day was this chart indicating how much money different labels and major music companies had um, donated on the occasion. Um, And I thought that that was really um, interesting. And it kind of leads me into our next question, which was like, what deeper issues do you feel needed to be addressed that day? Um, And so going to your first point about the donations, I feel like the donations didn't even happen until people started putting pressure like okay well you posted a square so what else are you gonna do you know what I mean like I think if nobody called like called out the the labels as as much as they did 
I don't think that they would have donated anything, you know, like to be completely frank, like now you guys have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars at your disposal. And something that um, I'm thinking about now is Bobby Shmurda, like his bail was for $2 million and LA Reid said, oh, the music industry isn't the cash cow that it once was. We don't have the music, uh, we don't have the money to bail him out. But you guys all, all of a sudden have all of this money that you just had sitting around. I don't buy that. You know what I mean? So it's like, it took people to just really just be like, okay, well, what is the next step for them to then open their, their wallets? And I even still think the amounts that they donated is not enough. It should be that amount of money, you know, annually, or, you know, we're going to do a benefit concert for these charities. Like, I just don't want them to think that them putting up X amount of dollars one time is enough. I was just going to say, yeah, it's hard not to take kind of a cynical view of it in that, I don't know, I couldn't help but see it as like, oh, like, yeah, suddenly you found these dollars, like, because they probably reallocated it to your marketing budget, because it's hard not to look at this stuff as a one-time marketing play. Right. Of course they're going to do it now, because if you don't, then you look bad, then you look racist. Exactly. More racist, you know? <laughs> exactly. It's a question of, like, so how do you... How do you continue to hold these institutions accountable? And, and how does this not just become a one-time thing that's just a, a, a hot publicity look, you know? Yes, absolutely. And as far as deeper issues go, I think that the day of pause was effective. I think that it really allowed people to see and say, hmm, what are my issues with the music industry? How are ways that I've seen my favorite artists um, exploited and, you know, taken advantage of. Like, think about all of the stories that you hear from relevant, um, popular artists. Like, Megan Thee Stallion, just this year alone, was going through a very bad contract um, situation. Right, Look at yeah. He didn't know what his deal was going through, what was going on with his deal. I talked to Cash Doll about a bad deal that she signed. Like, there are people who are, like, at the top of their game who have still been in predatory deals. And I think the discourse always is around, oh, well, why did they sign that bad deal? Why aren't we asking why the bad deal was presented to them in the first place? Are we presenting Justin Bieber's with bad deals? Are we presenting Selena Gomez's mm -hmm. with black, with bad deals? Like, why is it that the black kids mm -hmm. are the only ones get, that are getting bad deals? That doesn't make any sense to me. It's no reason why Megan Thee Stallion had the year that she had and was on Instagram Live talking about she didn't have any money. That makes no sense. Um, as far as the other issues go, um, something that I called out in the, the piece, like this infatuation with street life, this infatuation with gang life, and not to say that you can't be interested in it, but when it becomes an obsession, like when it comes to drill rap, tra uh, trap, um, pitchfork and noisy we failed those artists we failed those artists because we had people going into that community who were not of the community that's when you have a situation where now chief keith is in danger of going back to jail because you allowed him to be photographed with a gun in his hand that's where you have a situation where now migos is arrested because they have drugs and guns because you wanted to look cool on tv for content like that's pimping them out for content and i think at some point where you don't have the wherewithal to say hey this might not be okay for them this might put them in danger when you're just you know kind of like obsessed with being next to them versus looking at them as people you know it's kind of like when you don't know the code you don't know the code mm. so are we then just going to say like, oh, well, my, our bad. It, it does. It's not our bad if these people end up having to go to jail. Like Bobby Shmurda is, it's, I keep going to Bobby because I'm looking at this Brooklyn drill movement that has happened at his expense and he's been sentenced to seven years. Hopefully, fingers crossed, he'll be out at the end of this year, but he has not been here to be able to see and reap the benefits of this wave of Brooklyn rap that he started. And whose fault is that? I always think of this really cringy video. I don't know if you guys have seen it when he was like auditioning to be at Epic and it's a room full of white people and he's like dancing on tables doing his, 
doing mm-hmm. his thing. But then it's like you wonder why those people didn't come to his rescue when he needed him, when he needed them, rather. It's because it's a, it's a show, you know? It's a show for them and for these artists. This is their lives. Mm. 100%. And him going, him going to jail or needing legal support was not something that was useful to them. It was not to their benefit. Exactly. And for yeah. L.A. Reid to say we don't have the money, I obviously I don't know their their money situation, but the other part is like we are protecting um, predators, like sexual predators. I just did that piece on um, on the record, which was a documentary about the women who came and you know came forward about allegations against Russell Simmons and L.A. Reid, and these were women who you know wanted to work in the music industry, but because they Um, They made claims that they were sexually assaulted. They never stepped foot in the industry again because they did not feel comfortable doing so. So you have to think then, you know, beyond it being a a race thing, it's a sex thing as well, because now you're you're cutting off who can be in this room because now we don't want to be in the room because people are being creeps. Like it's just it's too, too many of the isms are keeping people who need to be in the rooms there. I was gonna say, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to bring up a name like L.A. Reid in this context without talking about mm-hmm. that and thinking about that. Well, interesting how that's the guy, you know, who has remained in power, and yeah. he's still in the business even after he was called out for inappropriate behavior. It just feels like nobody cares, and/or nobody wants to talk. Even after all the progress we've made towards like the Me Too movement and, and speaking out about what the industry has gone through on that level. But progress we've made with who, though? You know what I mean? With what type of woman? So that's what I think is interesting as well. It's just like, I I think that documentary made such a great point when it was just like, you know, who do we lose when you allow Black women to be silenced and when now these people walk away from their careers altogether? And that's not saying like, oh, yeah, you know, put the whole music industry on Black women's back so that we can fix everything. But you know, we are worse off when the whole room is just male and or just white. wondering if you could talk a bit about your story in journalism like how did you get started and how did you end up where you are now journalism is something that I have been doing forever I've been writing forever but I started in high school and that's how I knew I wanted to pursue it in college Um, so I went to Howard University which is an HBCU and there that's where you're learning a lot of black history you know the curriculum is not geared toward um, like typical quote-unquote American history it's basically learning all about your blackness and I thought that there would be no better place than to learn about the media there because black people are just so re uh we're poorly represented in newsrooms and I thought this would really be an opportunity to do it the right way um and I always 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 credit Moesha for why I wanted to get into culture reporting why I wanted to music journalism because you know as a black girl Moesha was it for me as far as representation goes and so she was a vibe intern and then I eventually became a vibe intern but once I graduated it's like I couldn't find a job to save my life so that's when I had to end up going back to school and I went to Columbia to get my master's and um that's really where I learned about white privilege because going to an Ivy League during the Trump election was a true eye opener for me. Like I'd never been in those sort of settings to hear those kind of conversations. And that's how I knew that, you know, we need more people who look like me in these rooms. We need people who look like me making decisions. We need people who look like me talking to people who look like me. And um, it's kind of just been a, a ride, a wild ride since then. What what did you uh what did you focus on when you were at Columbia? What was your area of specialty? 
Um, it was weird because at Columbia, they kind of like make you feel like if you're not trying to do breaking news or hard news, that it's not journalism. So I mm. kind of made my own path there because it was just like, oh, well, we want you to do this. And I was like, well, actually, I came here to do <laughs> arts and culture, to do music reporting, to do music journalism. So anytime they'd give me an assignment, I would kind of just outfit it to my interest. And um, I think it ended up working for the best. Like I did, I did pursue like an audio track, but didn't end up doing any podcasting or anything. Um, but it was just sort of this thing where it's just like, okay, well, you guys aren't feeding me the way that I feel like, or how I want my career to go. So I kind of just have to do this on my own. And I was going on so many informational interviews with just other people in the industry. And I, I always say like, it felt like I was going on 50 first dates because it was just very hard to find a woman who looks like me who was currently doing the job, currently doing the work. And I was just like, well, dang, like, do I just not have anybody to look up to? You know what I mean? Like to model my career or to have a blueprint for. So it was tough, but um, I've just kind of been making my own blueprint as I've been going on. Tell me a little more about like what, what, what drew you to covering music and culture? Was that sort of always what you had set out to do or did it just kind of like align with, you know, what the job prospects were at the time? Well, um, when I was in Columbia, uh, I actually thought I wanted to do education reporting. And even beyond that, I was like, oh, you know, it's really interesting to me. I wanted to, like, report on, like, prison, like, jail uh, issues. And then I was just like, who am I kidding? Like, I'm not, I'm not going to anybody's jail. I was just like, I don't think I could do that day in and day out. And then I was just like, you know, I had a really great time. Um, doing this vibe internship and music was the only thing that I was writing about that I felt like it came writing has always felt very natural but writing about music in particular felt even more natural and I always say like I'm not a person who knows every song I don't know every song I don't know every album but it's fun to me to contextualize what was going on in the world based on what people were listening to Mm. Um, that's kind of like how I started to determine what I wanted to cover because I feel like if you just look at hip-hop the origins you know like hip-hop was people's passports this is like how people were learning about what other people in different regions or even the same regions were doing you know I always say like when you come from poverty it's very rare that you're leaving your block you know let alone leaving your borough leaving your state And music was a conduit for people to learn what was happening outside of their direct neighborhoods. And it really allowed people to see like, we're all kind of living the same life, but we don't know each other. And we have this universal um, experience going on. Uh, The other thing is, so my brother is autistic. And every time I would come home from college break, he would always have a list of songs for me like oh can you put this on my ipod like he can't even communicate like you and i but he knows music so that to me was the the signifier that this is really universal and even people with no words know what music is and they know how it makes them feel you know totally that's amazing and where did you go after columbia yeah so um After Columbia, I got a fellowship with Pitchfork. That's when I was an editorial fellow for them. And it was pretty much a lot of fact-checking. And I got the opportunity to do a couple of risings. I also did an op-ed. And um, that was for six months. And by the time that was over, then Matthew Schnipper, who used to work there, he was basically just like, oh, do you have anywhere that you want to work? Like, any? can I connect you to anybody? Noisy was on the short list of people. And literally, Emily, that's when he connected me to you. Like, if, if my fellowship ended on Wednesday, then I think I met with you, like, that Friday and been at Noisy ever since.
I guess we sort of hit on the next question, which was what you know. What are what are the deeper issues about the music industry that you felt Blackout Tuesday needed to address? But also maybe what are some of the topics surrounding the issue that people aren't talking about enough? Like what slipped through the cracks? Like where, you know, where did the uh, focus get diverted from? I think that conversations are great. Starting points are great. But we need to have something. When I say we, I mean the Black community, Black artists, Black creatives. There needs to be something where, you know, we're checking in, <laughs> we're seeing what the progress is, because I just feel like we we often have these conversations and then we get exhausted from having conversations and then change doesn't come because we felt like the conversation was had and, and that was enough, you know? I think we, we really need to have, like, ownership and equity. It's really tough because I feel like we are not sure what the path forward is for that because these are institutions that have existed for forever. So we believe that they should continue to exist forever. Mm. Um, but I don't think that that's always the case. You know, I think if anything, if, if there's anything that this, you know, being in a pandemic and seeing all of this um, racism is teaching us is that a new normal is among us. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like we have to just not be afraid to to do away with no longer serves us as a culture. That's a great way to put it. That sort of uh, brought up another question we were going to ask, which is, you know, how, how would you describe the role of music itself in this protest music? Do you think music is responding to it or is opening up new directions. I mean, there was, again, another great line from your piece. You said, music has always been a direct response to corrupt systems. And then what that makes, you know, where my thought goes from there is, well, then what does music look like when its own system is corrupt? Yeah, that's great. (laughs) That is a great question. Um, And and even I did a piece um, for the end of decade about, how black protest music went mainstream, right? When you look at the albums of the 2010s, it it kind of protest music going mainstream was in tandem with the Black Lives Matter movement. You look at To Pimp a Butterfly, you look at Lemonade, you look at Solange's um, A Seat at the Table. These were all huge albums, huge albums that were still relegated to urban, quote unquote, urban categories in the, at the Grammys, you know what I mean? So I think as far as like what the role that music will play for this, like this uprising, I'm, I'm not sure what is going to happen as far as what the music will look like. But what I do know historically is that hip hop is gonna be the, the mirror, basically. It's, it's always been the mirror. Um, you look at NWA, it's been the mirror we've been saying hey the police are doing messed up things to black people for no reason you know what I mean but what I'm less interested in and I think what I'm seeing a lot of is music that are tied to the times do I think there are going to be artists who are trying to capitalize off of this movement of course but I, I hope that it opens it up to new directions you know because when you think about Black music, it has been resistance from plantations. It's been resistance before plantations, from the slave ships, you know? And I think what I'm more interested in is how we continue to find joy, how we continue to be happy, how we continue to, sh- to shine a light on the injustices, you know? Like, I don't want a million and one um, anti-police songs but I still want us to be black and to still make the music that reflects the times, but doesn't sound so dreary, I guess, so to speak. You know what I mean? I don't know if that's unrealistic to to ask or an unrealistic expectation, just because like we're all human, we're all going through the same thing. But I am very curious to see how, you know, how, where does joy show up? You know, is it all is it always going to be sadness? Like, I think we're all pretty sad right now. And I don't 
want to, I personally don't want to listen to sad music right now. Like City Girls just came out and I loved it because I was like, yes, this is what it feels like to be out in the sun. This is what it feels like to not have to think about this kind of stuff, you know? And I think that when people do that, but also hold the institutions accountable, I think that's protest Mm. music also. There's a line that I said in, well, that I wrote in the Black protest piece that I did for the end of decade um, in December. And it says, there's an old belief that great art comes out of greater turmoil, which seems to be upheld given what we saw in 2016. But it's hard to not also wonder what would Black artists create if they were just allowed to be. And that's Mm. really what I am looking for. I just want Black artists to just make the music that they're Heart wants to make you know like I think it's inc- it's so it's such a burden and I hate to say burden burden has such a negative connotation but to face these things that we face every single day and then for art you know what you create is supposed to be what what relieves you for that to also then have to you know be inextricably tied to some sort of struggle all the time you would never want to create you know Exactly, to have the additional onus of like, also then you have to speak for a movement. Right. Yeah. And I just find that that's, that's not how those kind of songs happen organically. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, with Marvin Gaye, like, oh my gosh. Let, like, yeah, What's Going On is a great song. But I don't, I don't know that, I don't know that he felt like I have to make this song right now that's going to stand the test of time. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like, I'm going to talk about what's going on. Mm. Little did he know (laughs) it would still be going on, (laughs) you know? I really wonder how people or how we will look back on, um, you know, the past uh, three, four years in terms of like a chapter in musical history. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. I'm... I'm very interested in just seeing what everybody has to say, like the, the younger artists, the more established artists. And I think it's just going to be interesting to see how music culture evolves, too, because like what I was saying is there's I'm wondering if there's, you know, going to be a certain detachment from music as escapism, which is I don't say that with judgment. You know, I think there's there is a value of like music culture being an escape. I mean, that's. That's why it's inextricably linked to protest culture. But I think that that escape has like gone more towards things like, you know, being a hot influencer at Coachella versus kind of like collective action and like a voice for the unheard. Um, but I think it'll be interesting to see how it redirects itself or if it does um, and reclaim itself as kind of like a channel of communication and, and real expression and not just of entertainment. Yeah. And like I started, um, in music journalism, um, at the turn of the last decade, I'd say, um, when, you know, when I entered, um, even as like a white woman, um, I felt like I was one of the only um, women um, around and there were, you know, few other um, like older um, women music journalists to look up to. Then I feel like there was um, a an interesting and like largely positive pivot um, in music journalism um, running from uh you know, kind of between 2010 and up until, you know, I guess like the Trump era where um, there are questions of uh, representation um, in newsrooms and among, you know, in the, in the coverage and the kinds of artists that were being discussed, questions of identity were being engaged more, like more and more. But there was also this like dance between kind of like the system and then the opening up to broader range of identities. And now I'm wondering if like with this most recent reckoning, especially in light of the music industry, if there's going to be kind of a um, 
now more of a like let's deconstruct the system moment instead of just like oh we're opening the system up to to different voices different sounds um different perspectives but like now if there's like going to be a more yeah structural and economic record reckoning um around the music industry itself i mean i'm i'm skeptical to think that you know this is going to be what it takes to make the powers that be the people who you know make six figures in media which is like a lot of broke writers in media um so we aren't the ones making those decisions so I'm very skeptical to think that this is going to be what changes things structurally as far as music media is concerned and even just media in general right doesn't even have to be music I'm looking at all of these EICs and all of these founders who are stepping down and sure, you know, on I, I can see it from both sides. On one end, it does seem, you know, valiant to say, okay, I've been doing this wrong. I'm going to step down and allow someone else to take that space. But on the other end, it also kind of just looks like you just don't want to, you don't want to not be racist. So you're just going to leave. You know what I mean? And I think removing that one person does not automatically dismantle the systems that they have already had in place. You know, and putting someone who is a quote unquote diverse hire in there to clean up their mess does nothing, you know, and especially if that diverse hire has no equity in the company. So who's still profiting? It won't be that person. You know what I mean? There's just this scramble now of like, okay, well, let's amplify these voices and what can we do? But it's like these voices have always been here. These voices have always been here. And especially, I feel like anytime I get on Twitter, you know, like you see so many, such a talented pool of black writers and they are always talking about their, or, you know, seeking their grievances about how they feel like they've been relegated to freelancing. And it's, the conversation isn't changing, you know, outlets are just saying, hey, yeah, we want to, we wish we could work with you guys, but due to COVID, things are out of our hands. Don't lie. It was never a priority, which is why they weren't getting the positions in the first place. It's very it's a it's a very opportune time to say that you want to diversify the newsroom when you know that many newsrooms don't have a budget right now. Do you know what I mean? You're you're hoping that the conversation dies down so that you don't actually have to change anything within the newsroom. So to me it's just like it's all very convenient and you know when I look at how vibe has been dissolved you know and that happened well before George Floyd but it happened as a result of well quote-unquote I don't know I don't I don't work there so I don't know what's going on but it seemed to be built under the the thing of like oh well COVID happened and we have no budget and we can't keep on these writers so it just so happened that COVID happened and y'all are just cutting the Mm. black magazines hmm You know, like it was a lot of talented, talented black writers, a lot of coverage that we needed, that we needed. And, um, you know, the podcast even just did a a piece where they were like, oh, well, here's the source. And this is what this is how the source covered the L.A. riots. Why isn't the source saying how the source covered the L.A. riots? Why do why do you have to speak about the source under your white gaze? Do you feel me? These are legacy publications who were doing the work when it mattered. The work always matters, but they were doing the work before it was trendy. And I just feel like as a fan of, you know, music, as a fan of, uh, you know, journalism, I have watched this industry get co-opted. I have watched the, the bloggers from the blog era get discounted just for white guys from middle America to use those same tactics and get real jobs and discount those black writers, those black bloggers, when they got to those jobs, like you weren't being a hawk the entire time they were doing their job. It's devastating. And then also that those people are, are writing about, uh, they're writing about black music too, you know? Right. They're writing about black music and it's not to say, you know, that 
nobody, only black people can write about black music. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if you are going to insert yourself in our culture, then you need to be willing and able to have some receipts and demand change on a broader scale. You know what I mean? Like, don't just come around when it's time to look cool. Don't just come around when it's time to add people on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And show your friends with, with cool new rappers you're hanging out with or going on jets or whatever to Kanye's thing. Don't just do that. <laughs> you know, be around for the long haul. And also, it matters if you put people into positions where they're able to actually make decisions that affect the entire operation. Absolutely. And it's it's really a matter of like, well, what makes one person qualified and what makes another person not and it's it often comes down to experience but what are we what are we counting as experience do does does john have experience because he's been in the media for five years and does derek does that basically negate like derek's 20 years or 30 years of being a black man in america who 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 would really have the experience there you know what i mean and it's kind of just a thing where it's just like experience according to whom Mm. credentials according to who and it's 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 often just placed at this barometer where it's like we need we have to just change we have to change the rubric at which we we grade these things we have to change just the thought process of who's allowed in the room and who's not and why that is and why that is and that even goes back to the artist like you know, give, you don't just give the white publications uh, a chance. Give the black press a chance as well. Give the black journalists at the white publications a chance. Like, I see this so many times where it's just like, oh, well, such and such, and such only wants to do um, a piece if they're getting a cover or if they're doing this or if they're doing that. There's so many um, little, you know, small little specifications. And then when that piece comes out bad, you wonder why the piece is bad. It's because you went to a publication and there wasn't no black people. No black people worked there. So are we are we surprised then that the piece came out bad when you had nobody there to really handle things with care? That's how I try, I try to handle. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, yes, I'm a journalist. You're supposed to be unbiased. Sure, still, but there is still a certain amount of care that you should take when you are covering black people. Yeah, there's a responsibility to it, especially with culture journalism. Especially, and especially knowing the ways, you know, our culture has been erased and then repackaged back to us. If you don't do your job, because literally it's your job. So if you are not doing your job to properly document what's going on, then you should be in a different business because that is literally your job. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) I'm cynical, but I I just feel like I've seen through my career so many examples of, you know, people rising to positions of power, especially white people, especially white men, um, just because they were friends with somebody, you know, and um, not, it's not even, it's not based, like, it's not based on even, like, you know, qualifications or degrees or even talent it's just that they were friends with the right person and the people who hired them are not really thinking about these issues at all and then power ends up protecting power power also ends up you know using the people who are in lesser position lower positions of power to do the work that helps prop up power as well and do their work for them and clean up their messes. That's my rant. Hmm. Yep. <laughs> Good rant. Okay, amen to that. <laughs> I guess I'll just like wrap up my thoughts about music media, just because I really feel like, you know, we are as equally to blame as the labels, you know, and I, I urge everyone who, you know, you keep if you keep up with music media, if you're a part of music media, be media literate, you know? Look at who's being covered. Look at who's being honored all the time. Look at who gets 
um, movies done after them, who gets books done after them. I urge everyone who really takes inventory of the music you're listening to, what you're reading, you know, really think about why do we honor certain artists and not honor others? Why is it that Black artists are only honored when they die? And there are other artists who are honored all the time. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's it's about what albums, what artists get revisited constantly and who gets to revisit them. You know, like I, I would say, and I, I don't want to call out Pitchfork, but a lot of those reviews that I was reading, it's like, oh, this is great. Look up the artist. I mean, look up the author, white person. So we couldn't find a black person to, you know, contextualize what was happening. And I think it, as readers too, you know, I would I would like us as readers and as writers to hold each other accountable. You know, I, I was having this conversation with Emily how, how elitist this business can be. And it often gets to be elitist because, you know, if you know the name of every instrument and you can package it up really nicely, then it's like, wow, that person really knows what they're talking about. But if you didn't contextualize this and if you left out major parts of what happened to these people as a result, did you really understand? Do you know what I mean? I can't tell you what a lot of instruments are. I don't know. I don't play instruments. I know it sounds good. I know what makes me feel good. And I know what resonates with people. So I think when it comes to cultural reporting, there has got to be some sort of barrier to entry. And, you know, I don't think that it's not enough to be able to say you're, you know, you want to be attached or um, adjacent to some culture because, because you know the terminology. You know what I mean? If you don't understand how those people operate as people, if you are not willing to go up to bat for them as people, remove yourself. Yeah, Kristen, I mean, there was a line in in, in your essay where you said, um, Some, uh, sometimes it takes days to find the words because as the unofficial spokesperson for the Black community, I feel inadequate if I don't have some James Baldwin-esque soliloquy rumbling inside of me. I mean, that's that's an incredible line, and it's Thank you. I, I just I think it really captures, uh, you know, the like like the inequity of 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 exactly what like the media and music industry workplaces are like. Whether, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but it it sounds like you know whether whether or not you wanted to write this piece, you know, I imagine there was a sense of like were you know the eyeballs were upon you, or kind of like for for any instance, you know. And I, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about like how you know, how, how that's affected your career and the kind of things you want to write about versus you feel like you have to write about? Yeah, um, it's definitely, it's been a doozy. <laughs> so <laughs> what I will say about that line is, you know, I'm very aware that, you know, in this era of fast news and, you know, social media, content is king. I am very aware of that, and uh, it often benefits the writers who can get things out of them quickly and share it, you know, in a pretty packaging and all that kind of stuff. My writing kind of, I don't operate that way. You know, I don't have the best things to say. My best, my best takes are not reactionary. My best takes, they need to be lived in. They, I have to have time to think about things and I don't think it serves anyone, especially coming from an outlet uh, with the history that Vice has. It doesn't serve anyone to then say, oh, well, I'm super mad about this. Let me write about it right now and just press publish. You know what I mean? Like, I have a responsibility, not only because it's my byline, but I have a responsibility to do a little bit more thinking and a little bit more prodding than... Um, I guess you can say the average writer simply because I'm the only one in the room, you know, and um, sometimes like I'm not going to lie, like I envy people who can just come to work and say, oh, I'm going to write about this dumb thing today. You know, like that that is that is a very uh, vice thing and a very um, hipster Mm. media thing where it's like everybody's just like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to be quirky and I'm going to write about this thing where it's kind of just like. I don't have that luxury because the things that um, are aligned with my identity are not quirks. 
like quite literally as this movement is playing out, it's a matter of life or death. And I don't have the liberty to poke fun at black art and black music and TV film and, and culture at, a, at large. I don't have the liberty to just poke fun of that because I want something to go viral. You know what I mean? Totally. Um, I would say like, in my experience working in different newsrooms, um, it's often, especially in the past five years or so, like it feels like the kind of what you refer to of like finding like this quirky thing that can go viral is um, often celebrated more than work that has like... Uh, that is about uh, that that has a serious focus and that is about you know marginalized communities and I see that a lot in like you know as a music editor when when you're like the head of a publication mm-hmm. or whatever um, everything is about uh, traffic and it, that that system often um, makes it so that like. Uh, it actively discourages writing about, you know, emerging artists, smaller artists, um, and kind of creates this like sameness where everybody is writing, you know, about the same six like big pop stars rather than like supporting the artists who genuinely need um, to be supported and have their stories told sensitively. Right, or people whose value isn't one way or another like linked to capitalism, whether that be be that through record sales or be that through clicks, you know? Yeah, I just kind of think about the way I consume anything that I read, right? Like, I don't know, it can it could be about any artist, any band. I always want to go and I always want to read the first, like one of the first things that was published about them. So I always kind of approach my writing that way, like, okay, well, if there's going to be some nerdy girl 20 or 30 years from now who really wants to know about, and that's kind of how I approach the Lucky Day piece, right? So if there's going to be some nerdy girl who thinks Lucky is just the coolest thing since sliced bread 30 years from now, how am I going to handle his story? You know what I mean? What's going to set apart my profile from anything else that anybody would read? And um, I mean... Being at Noisy, being at Vice, um, and like you said, like just the pressures of what um, contemporary media, the landscape, what the landscape looks like now, it's very easy to then just just say, you know, I'm just going to do what's asked of me and or what I think is expected of me so that I can be, quote unquote, performing. But that does not serve my community. You know what I mean? So I think it's just about not being the loudest, you know, I think one of my, or a mantra that I go by is like, I don't want to, I don't, I'm not, I don't really care to have the first story. I care to have the best story because oftentimes the first story you, you just, you're doing it, you're slapping it together because you want to say, Hey, I planted the, the flag here and I'm doing it like this, but it's just like, but did you talk to them how a human should be talked to? to our advice section uh drew writes in i am feeling old and like i am falling out of touch with the tastes of a younger generation how do i keep up you know what drew (laughs) i feel that way too i was gonna say i often feel old as well even though i'm actually not that old but it just seems like these artists are getting younger and younger by the second um what i find is easy is just Look on TikTok. Like, every I, I find that, like, all of the pop-in songs, all of the songs that you need to know about if you're, like, going to be going to a bar. Well, nobody's going to a bar. But if you want to not be lost in conversation, it's just, like, what's playing on TikTok? What are people talking about on Twitter? Like, just trending things. That's how I stay um, abreast of, like, things that I feel like 
I probably wouldn't gravitate toward on my own, but I would definitely say TikTok is where it's at if you feel a uh, capital <laughs> O and old. And, um, Very sage advice. Um, I would also say this is like, you know, this question was coming from the perspective of a uh, a journalist, a culture journalist. I would I would also say just like talk to people. Don't assume that you understand where the music is coming from um, and don't like write something about how you don't get it because it's just not your experience. Um, so maybe. maybe <laughs> right. That's a cool way to out yourself yeah. as an old. And like, <laughs> yeah, like don't, maybe don't review it. Just if you're interested in it, then be a reporter and talk to the talk to people about it um so that you can get it totally i've always found that for me some of my favorite things to write about or report on is the music that i don't understand or like that just doesn't like you know resonate with me the same way for like you know artists that i like will go to like a devoted live set for because i want to understand i want to understand why other people are into it i don't care whether i think it's good or bad that's not interesting to anyone I care why a ton of people are interested in this movement and what does that tell us about our culture and about the world around us and why is it exactly. important to them? I think that we fetishize um, youth too much and, you know, obviously uh, the industry, music industry, you know, has a reputation for sort of, you know, oh, you get like this many years when you were young to shine and then you're over the hill, which is terrible, you know, and I think that like, that is really, really problematic. But in the case of, you know, younger generations music, um, you know, it's soup if you don't get it, it as Andrea said, it's super interesting. Like what can we learn about the Zeitgeist? What can we learn about history is and like this moment, um, and this technological moment, especially um from um, from experiencing this. I think you put that well, especially when, you know, there's a ton of interest now in how the K-pop fans are mobilizing and TikTokers are mobilizing um, and using not only music, but social media as activism. And I think it would behoove everyone to really approach, you know, approach the, the youth as you would approach any subject because at the end of the day a lot of them are wiser than than you think you know and and even when you look at when we're talking about protests we're talking about activism when you look at a lot of these larger movements they were spearheaded by young people teenagers people in their young in their early 20s you know and if we did not give you know people of the black panther movement that respect would we have that movement so the old people are the reason why <laughs> these are that's the reason why things are the shit now you know so look to them for the appropriate answers yeah all right i think that's a wrap This episode of The Culture Journalist was produced and edited by me, Andrea Dominic, and my co-host, Emily Friedlander. Our music was composed by Mark Donica. Special thanks to our guest, Kristen Corey. For links to her work, social media, and more episodes, head to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts to help support independent journalism.